Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the biggest stories of the week was the anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots. President Biden began the day by denouncing the violence and pinning all the blame on former President Trump. Fellow Americans, to state the obvious, one year ago today, in this sacred place, democracy was attacked, simply attacked. The will of the people was under assault. The Constitution, our Constitution, faced the gravest of threats. Outnumbered in the face of a brutal attack, the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, the National Guard, and other brave law enforcement officials saved the rule of law. Our democracy held. We, the people, endured. We, the people, prevailed. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. Many Republicans, on the other hand, handled the day in a variety of ways. Some tried to depict what happened on that day as acts of patriotism or defending freedom. Others held rallies in support of protesters at the Capitol. One year later, some of the participants are even running for elected office. For more on all of this, we'll speak to David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. The traditionalist Republicans, which are a, a shrinking brand in that party, I think are worried about the electoral implications of all of the talk about January 6th. And you know, a very tiny fraction of the Republican Party is worried about it for ethical or pro-democracy reasons. There's a larger contingent of the party that's worried about the implications in the vote in November. They see Biden as weak. And in fact, public polling shows Biden's in a bad position and Republicans are poised to do very well in the midterm elections. They would prefer for the party not to be identified as lunatics. That, I think, is the unsettled element of that party. The majority of the GOP base, though, has you know, really mainlined this idea that you know, these false claims that the election was stolen and now the new conspiracy theories that this was not an attack on the Capitol and that this was either you know downplaying it either as a mere protest or uh, wrongly and falsely saying that this was the result of you know, some kind of false flag event, Democrats or the government leading the event. Let's talk a little bit about the terms being thrown around with all of this. Kind of you alluded to it a little bit, but you know, a lot of the participants, uh, at least on the Republican side, are depicting the people who participated in the riots as patriots, political prisoners. There's going to be a number of vigils and rallies and stuff that were supposed to be held, you know, supporting these people. A lot of them got canceled. President Trump was going to hold an event as well. That got canceled. But this is how they're trying to reposition them, I guess, as patriots. That's right. And I wouldn't read too much into the cancellation. 
the Trump presser got canceled, but he still put two statements out within seconds of Biden finishing speaking. And he'll be at a rally in Arizona next week where you know, Trump's voice is not diminished in the Republican Party, I don't think. And, and these these other events, yes, Cobb County and Georgia canceled their event, but there are other ones going on in more than a dozen states. Uh, by my count, there will be vigils for these political prisoners, is what they call them, of, of January 6th. And even more than that, you know, if you watched Fox at all during the day on Thursday, what, what you saw is a regurgitation of, of a lot of these ideas and a downplaying of the significance of the event. And that's to say nothing of the further right places, places like Bannon's War Room, where Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates were lying about the events. So the entire ecosystem has spun up pretty well on this in a counter narrative of delusion, really, about what happened on January 6th. And in the meantime, you know, a lot of the people that participated in this are running for office or running for local office. I think you said 57 individuals who played a role in the January 6th events are going this route. They're trying to run for elected office, trying to increase their voices there. Yeah, definitely. There's a, you know, there's an entire crop of, of Republicans who are making careers off of this. Something of, you know, this is like a, a grifter complex or something, industrial complex, right? In the, in the GOP. And they're, because you know, these, these aren't lonely voices. That's the thing. It's not like somebody participating at the Capitol riot last year is viewed as a negative within the GOP. If you went to the Capitol riot, you can wear that as a badge of honor in a GOP primary for sure. And then in a general election anywhere, it's really unclear to me that the idea of pro-democracy, anti-democracy is playing for voters in a way that matters. So somebody can run in a primary election touting their involvement in an insurrection and then in a general election, be very easy to pivot to talking about the economy and talking about Joe Biden. How does this play out for the future? I mean, we have a panel in Congress investigating all of the stuff that happened then. You know, you spoke to a couple of Republican strategists who is advising people that are running for office right now. And telling He's telling them, dodge some of these questions, you know, obviously, unless this is part of your campaign and you want to get fully involved in it. But to a point, you know, he's telling people, just dodge these questions. Let's talk about real issues, let's say, rather than keep going back to all of this. Right. And this goes to the point that Republican office holders hold, too, which is you have you know, a very good landscape right now with President Biden you know, in bad shape in public opinion polls. You have his approval rating way down. You have COVID still raging. People are upset about the direction of the country. All of those are true things going on where Democrats are in trouble. And if Republicans can keep their focus on that, they have what they view as a winning argument in November. And this other thing may become a distraction or certainly more muddled for them. Well, it's an ongoing story. As I mentioned, we're still getting more stuff from the panels investigating all of it. But just, uh, you know, one year later, uh, is still a very hot topic of discussion there in Congress and across the country. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. As we hit the anniversary of the January 6th Capitol riots, members of Congress are still investigating what went down on that day. But how has some of the extremism that took place on that day shifted a year later? Much of it has moved to the local level. The shift has gone to local politics, school boards, and county health boards. For more on how this shift has a purpose, we'll speak to Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. So in the weeks and months after January 6th, a lot of these extremists have been on the run, you know, on the land, basically, because the feds were after them. 
the FBI posted pictures of their faces on the Internet. They were seeing jail time, as you can see now. And President Trump, he is hosting this rally at Mar-a-Lago on January 6th, saying that he needs justice for all these people from January 6th. These people were genuinely and sincerely afraid of getting caught. So they laid low. They went back down and they organized locally. And that's what you're seeing in the last few months. People like Steve Bannon have said, we need to go village by village. And Mike Flynn said, you have to take over your school boards and take back your communities. And that's what we've seen. Uh, These groups that are tied with the Proud Boys or just the Proud Boys themselves are going to local school board meetings. They're going to health boards and they're intimidating members until they get the votes they think are correct. Yeah. and, And we saw that play out, right? In a bunch of different ways. Maybe you didn't know at the time that some of the people could have been part of these groups, but we've all seen stories about these really contentious school board meetings, for example, right? Battling the mask mandates or vaccine mandates, and things are just going out of control and people are shaking their heads saying, you know, what's going on? But this is part of that. This is part of that effect where they're just trying to fight any, you know, governmental action, really. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I talked to this woman named Denise Aguilar, who runs a group called Mom Militia and Freedom Angels, another group there. And I talked to her in Stockton, California, where she was outside of a Board of Education meeting. And she was at the Capitol on January 6th. She talked about how we stormed the Capitol on January 6th in Instagram posts that she deleted because she was also one of those people who sort of tried to distance herself from it. But she was outside of this Board of Education meeting talking about my body, my choice, about how the vaccine mandates for children in California shouldn't exist. And inside, they sided with her. The vote went in her direction, even though she didn't even have children in that school district. But she was able to organize through Telegram and through local groups this outcome that she really wanted, even though, you know, she was part of this this large group that was outside of the Capitol on January 6th. Right. She was she was successful in her effort. Uh, the school board ended up voting down whatever the mask mandate that they were trying to get passed. They ended up voting it down because so much pressure from protesters and whatnot. And as you mentioned, a lot of these groups, there was a lot of big national rallies, things like that beforehand, too. And all of that kind of calmed down after January 6th because a lot of people were being named and whatnot. So they went to the local level. They also did retreat back to the Internet and a lot of these Internet groups that they have and, and organizing that way continued. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of these people were banned from Facebook and Twitter because of their bans on extremism in general, especially around January 6th. They really started to take seriously their bans of, say, QAnon accounts on places like Twitter. So those people reorganized in different parts of the Internet. Now, a big thing in the far right is to create a parallel Internet with different services that won't ban you no matter what. And that's what they've done in the last year. They went to services like Getter, which was created by Jason Miller, a former Trump aide. They went to Gab and they went to Telegram. And that's where they all live now. They live in a different section of the Internet than most civilian parts of the Internet. But it's working as a communications infrastructure. It works for them to get people the messages that they need to organize in real life. And while they may not be confronting people on the Internet constantly in your spaces and you know traditional spaces on Twitter or Facebook on the civilian Internet, they are organizing so they can be in civilian spaces in real life. And that's what's working for these people right now. Yeah, they'll spread some misinformation. I think uh, in the article you pointed to an example where they said some kid was going to get arrested for refusing to wear a mask or something. And obviously that was false, but it kind of trickled out and people started seeing it and, and the misinformation grows and it you know stirs up these groups again to go down again to reinforce the whole point, go down to the local level, go down to the school board meetings and, and local elections and kind of make us think about those things. That's the problem with these 
alternative, I would say, social media communities. Regular people are not on there saying, hey, this isn't true. This isn't actually happening. Of, of course, this isn't true. This is from a fake news website. This is a meme. Nobody is confronting these people or, or even reality doesn't seep into those spaces. So they live in an echo chamber over there where they just continually get more and more riled up over the course of the year. So while the information's wrong and not good, it doesn't matter to them because they, you know, they have an entirely different set of experts, an entirely different set of rules in these spaces. The spaces are much smaller than the Facebook groups that grew organically and algorithmically because Facebook is such a powerful tool. But the places are also a lot more delusional than they were in the years past. Yeah, just an interesting look to see how some of the participants that happened that were there on January 6th, how these groups have changed. You mentioned the article, uh, not just uh, you know where they're organizing, where they're protesting, but their infrastructure, the messaging. All that's kind of morphed into something else. And, you know, we'll see what happens on the anniversary date, on the actual anniversary date, how things continue to change through all of this. Ben Collins, senior reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Finally, for this week, another interesting story on the COVID front. COVID testing is once again becoming an issue as demand for tests is growing. Specifically, at-home rapid tests are very hard to come by. And when you do find them, the prices can be inflated. Some are resorting to buying tests at triple the retail price and even buying them on the street as if they were black market purchases. They're becoming a necessity for returning to work and school. For more on the unpredictable market for rapid tests, we'll speak to Kelsey Butler, equality reporter at Bloomberg News. Yeah, that sidewalk story was one that really stood out to me. It almost sounds, uh, it sounds like You'd be exchanging something much more nefarious, but (laughs) no, it's an at-home COVID test. This uh, restaurant worker who um, I mentioned in the story, she had been exposed to COVID and the acquaintance that she bought them from actually got the test for free through his job. So people are taking advantage if they have them, if they've been stockpiling them to turn around and resell them. And because the desperation is so high, people feel like they have to pay them. I think when the math shook out, it was something like $23 for each individual test that she bought that day. What is the roundabout retail price of what they were? Like the Binax Now kits, those are some of the popular ones. If I remember correctly, it was about 25 bucks for two tests in a box. Is that what it was? Exactly. And that's about uh, how you would pay, how much you would pay at some uh, large uh, retail chains. But it's actually really bad timing right now because there was a deal with some big retailers like Walmart and Kroger where they were selling the tests at lower prices. It was a deal that had been reached with the Biden administration, and that just expired. So right as we're having this new variant come in, a bunch of people are coming back from New Year's, Christmas, all that stuff. The prices on those are going up. You'd be able to get them before at like $14 on Walmart shelves, and now it's going to be about 20 bucks. Yeah, testing in the country has always been a tough thing. I, I mean, anybody that was driving around over the holiday breaks, you undoubtedly saw long lines on cor- street corners sometimes, and you were saying, what's going on? What's this line? You drive up, it's a COVID testing site, you know, and obviously people are trying to get back to school to work. You know, they need their, their results quicker, so they're trying to turn to these rapid tests. And, you know, to the point of what we're talking about, they're just so hard to find you had another story where there was a group of restaurant workers that needed to get them. They paid 180 bucks for four test kits. Exactly. And um, yeah, there was another person that I, I chatted with who's a musician uh, based in New York, and she had been using rapid tests a lot with 
other fellow musicians. She's recording an album now. So when they would go into studio, they would just use them. And she was saying that they were using them like candy. And she has found no reason to start stockpiling them. But something that was available so freely a month ago doesn't look the same way now. And I think she paid $37 for a test that typically retails at 24 at like Walgreens. Now, where do we stand with getting reimbursed for some of these tests? I believe the Biden administration said that they would make reimbursements available through private health insurers and all that. Where do we stand on that part? So more information on that um, will be released. Biden uh, said this week that people should be able to be reimbursed through private insurance later this month. But anyone that has called their insurance company ever knows that nothing is necessarily simple when you're trying to get money back. And also, if you've taken a route like buying a home test from someone on a street corner or on an online Facebook group or something like that, it's not like you're necessarily going to have a receipt that you can turn around and send to your insurance company. Yeah, I guess the Biden administration has said that they're trying to send 500 million free at-home tests to people, but those have not uh, started arriving yet. So we still have to wait a little bit more time on that. And, you know, the it's just going to be an unpredictable market for the near future, at least. And it's in big contrast to what's happening to some other European countries where you note in your article, you know, they're free, pretty easy to find. Since I've sent out the article, a bunch of people have been messaging me on social media and whatnot, saying that they're paying a fraction of the same prices for similar tests in European countries, and they're able to get them much more readily. Um, and obviously, as uh, people say, you know, public health officials and public health experts, the more readily available they are, the more frequently they'll be used, that saves infections, and it ultimately benefits us all. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're just kind of at the mercy of uh, either retailers or, you know, uh, uh, trying to basically adjust prices as they go, really, too. You made a note of a company, WeShield, who sells medical supplies and things like that. And depending on their stock, depending on how much they're being charged for the test, they have to adjust the prices and send those on, uh, pass those along to the consumer, too. Exactly. Finax test uh, that we just talked about that sold at Walmart for 14 now 20 uh, WeShield is selling for about $50. And that's just comes down to the supply demand dynamics that we're seeing right now. There's a bunch of other similar type third-party retailers that are also having prices in that range. And, you know, anyone that gets an ad on the side of their uh, email or any website they're scrolling will see those prices around there too. And, you know, that pressure really won't be released until there's more tests out there and on the market. Well, hopefully we get our act together on that. And hopefully nobody has to buy tests on a street corner. <laughs> so we'll keep monitoring <laughs> all of this. Kelsey Butler, equality reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.